What a blessing to all be back together again this morning in this place. And not only be here, but to get to worship together. So everybody get a good glimpse behind me. Yeah. It's the first chance you've gotten to see that. Um, we're back together again in John. John's Gospel account. And we talked last week about um, belief in John's Gospel account. It takes me this July to Christmas. <laughs> you may recall that most Decembers, actually probably beginning the end of November, Macy's puts out a one-word ad campaign, Believe. That time of year, it might make us smile. It's a, it's a call to belief in belief. It's a general notion that might make us smile, but, but ultimately, it's not satisfying. Because we know, we want, we need more. What does it mean to believe? Does our belief have an object? And how can we find that belief? Well, that's the whole point of John's gospel account. We're going to hear that call to truth, authentic, real, bloody belief throughout this whole gospel account. And we're going to see him hit it hard again this week as we're in the midst of John's prologue. We're going to see it as we turn to John 1, verses 6 through 13. So as we prepare to go to that text, let me ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Would you bow with me? Father, this is, this is your word. Every bit of it and every bit of it is true. And so I pray that in these next moments as we come under your word, that you would silence any distraction we might have, that you would open our hearts to hear, and to see, and to know Jesus. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So let's, let's begin at the ending. How's that? From the outset, I want to take you to the last two words that I read from this text and let them be an overarching umbrella that will guide us through the rest of the text. Of God. All that we read here, 
and all of Scripture and, and in all of this text is of God, which John makes it even more explicit when he talks about the witness. The witness is sent from God. Of God, we have a witness from God. It sets us out on this journey through this text with a very important fundamental truth. That God ordains the end and God ordains the means. Now, we said last week that this gospel is the gospel according to John, but it's the gospel about Jesus, which means it's his gospel about a person so that we might know the person, Jesus Christ. That is the end that God has ordained. He has ordained this end that his people from all time will know the person of Jesus. But not only has he ordained that end, he has ordained the means by which we come to that end. A series of witnesses <clears throat> that John will reveal to us in this gospel account. Now, the scripture itself is a witness, but there will be others that we see in this gospel account. We'll, we'll see a series of signs, of miracles, and he gives us those miracles as a witness to Jesus. But here, the witness is John. Now, who is John? Press pause for a second. <laughs> Maybe you have had a chance to see it. If you haven't, I'll, I'll, I'll point you to a resource that we've put out for you is, a, is an introduction to this gospel account. We referenced it in our newsletter where we, we go back and we give a little bit of the background behind this gospel account. It's a 10-minute video that you can watch at your leisure to give you some of the background understanding behind this gospel account. And what we said there is what I put back before you now. This is the gospel according to John, the Apostle John. Apostle John wrote this gospel account but here in John 1 he's speaking of John the Baptist John the cousin of Jesus who even when he was in the womb his mother Elizabeth was anointed by the Holy Spirit so when Mary would come pregnant with Jesus John would leap in his mother's womb this was the same John who who would grow in his anointing cry out in the wilderness, making the way of the Lord. He was a prophet, long before prophesied, who would, who would clear the path for Jesus. Now, each gospel begins Jesus' public ministry with mention of John, making the way, clearing the path. But in John's gospel, he describes him differently as a witness. A witness meant to bear witness. Recently, I heard an interview by Bill Clinton. And he said something that, uh, that struck me. He said, you know how you know when you're no longer president? <laughs> when you walk into a room, there's no longer a band playing Hail to the Chief. <laughs> he sort of got used to that along the way. Missed it <laughs> when it was no longer there. See, kings and, and presidents, they have heralds that announce their presence when they enter into the room. Jesus, the Son of God, had heralds announcing him, but he had a witness. 
And the witness did more than, than pronounce his entrance into the room. The witness was there to testify to his identity. Now, as we think about the witness testifying to the identity of Jesus Christ, I want to bring out a couple of points about the witness. The first is the direction of the witness. It's a point that ought to be uh, obvious to us, but in our day and age bears repeating. The witness is meant to draw attention away from himself and onto the object of his witness. John was not there to draw attention to himself. John, as the witness to Jesus, was there to shine the spotlight on Jesus. No one cares what the spotlight looks like as long as the spotlight is serving its purpose. And the purpose that John came to serve was to direct, focus, attention on the person of Jesus Christ that through his witness, all people, all kinds of people might believe. So when we're thinking about the witness, we understand the direction of his testimony. But that word testimony tells us something else. When we hear witness, maybe, maybe in your mind you, you might go to a, a courtroom setting. What do witnesses do in the courtroom? Well, they offer testimony in order to convince a jury of something one way or the other. This description of John as a witness is, is intentional in John. We're uh, going to see instances of, of testimony born for Jesus. But understand something, this gospel is pointing us to belief in Jesus, and yet we need to know that in this courtroom setting, Jesus is not on trial. We're tempted to think that way, right? When we hear about a witness and we hear about Jesus and we hear about testimony, we're tempted to put ourselves in the jury box, to sort of weigh the evidence back and forth. And some have done that, and there's a place for it, I, I know. But there's a subtle problem when we put ourselves in the jury box. You see, we're tempted to make ourselves the ultimate arbiter of truth. But Jesus, as we heard last week, is the eternal, creative, personal word who, who is not only true, he is truth itself. We're not the authority over whether or not Jesus is true in this courtroom. It's the jury that is on trial. God is the authority. God sent John to bear witness about Jesus, not so that we could judge truth, but so that we can know truth. It's belief. How do we find this belief? Well, the text tells us that we find this belief by listening to the witness. We listen to the witness, the witness of John, the witness of Scripture, so that we might believe in two Jesus. Macy's concept of belief is, is general. It has no object. Maybe. Different subject, different day. But the thrust here on believing is believing into the name of Jesus. 
Why his name? One of the things as we've moved into this building over the past couple of weeks that um, I don't think I was prepared for, one of the things that has taken me aback is the sheer volume of keys that are required to make your way around this place. There are different keys for different doors. There are keys for the soap dispenser. There are even keys for the toilet dispenser or the toilet paper dispenser. And you've got to know which key goes to which door or you're lost. So what have we done? We've taken great care to to label those keys, to name them, and to place them on a rack so that we can keep track of them. But as, as much care as we've taken to name those keys, to label them, not once, not once have I gone up to a door and stuck the label of that key into the door to open it. We've got to understand there's a difference between the key and its name. I separate out the essence of the key from its identifier. And we do the same with people. We, we separate their, their name, their label from their essence, from their being, but not so with Jesus. Those of you who have been around, you remember we just finished preaching through the Ten Commandments. And when we got to the Third Commandment, We read in God's word that we are not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Why his name? Well, God is holy. Therefore, his name is holy. Scripture does not separate his essence from his name. When we speak of God and when we use his name, We're capturing the totality of his being. We are capturing the totality of his person. And so to believe in his name is to believe in his essence. Don't separate the name of God, the name of Jesus from his person. But why did I say into Jesus? Is that sort of an autocorrect mistake? Did Siri do that to us? No. I'm trying to capture something. I'm trying to draw something out of the text. I'm also trying to draw something out of our own heart. Many of us, practically, have reduced believing in Jesus to believing about Jesus. Rather than believing into Jesus, we're believing about him, about things about him, descriptors about him. Here's what that looks like. We might believe that Jesus was a man. We might believe that Jesus was a teacher, a good moral teacher. We might even believe that Jesus was the son of God. And yet in believing, we still can keep him at an arm's distance. We believe facts without letting those facts impact our heart. Look, our our southern Bible Belt culture is notorious for this. For even identifying ourselves, labeling ourselves as a Christian without much real transformative power behind that label. Let me clue you in on something. If you talk to a non-Christian, that's actually the thing that's going to bug them most about Christianity. They rightly see, if these, these truth claims that, that we proclaim are real, we ought to be in something. 
it ought to, it ought to change us. It ought to impact our hearts. But when we believe certain things about Jesus without it impacting our lives, we're missing out on believing into Jesus. But the text, by the construct of the wording, speaks of receiving and believing. Receiving and believing gets at the dynamic nature of faith. That faith, belief, is more than verbal assent. It's more than agreeing to a certain set of facts. It is, in fact, trusting, accepting those claims, and thereby dedicating our very lives to Him. To receive Jesus is to, is to come under His Lordship in all of life. So there's a transfer that takes place in this belief. A, a transfer of belief away from self in the world. A transfer into Jesus. Maybe better said a transfer of trust away from self. And a transfer of trust into Jesus. But it's not only the, the construct of receiving and believing it speaks to to this is also the very preposition that John uses in the text. The word translates it as believing in his name, but it also maybe more accurately could be said believing into his name. Into is a, is a joining into, it's a uniting into. Look, when I got married. I believed certain things about my wife, but I joined into her. And my marriage would not be all that, well, it wouldn't be all that great if we merely understood certain facts and details about one another. But union is more than that. Union is uniting into a person. And that is what Scripture is calling us to when we are to believe into Jesus. Belief is not merely storing up knowledge about Jesus. It is a transfer of trust into Jesus. Now, so some of us, we're hearing this concept of belief, and it is a, it is a thrilling new notion of belief. We've not heard about believing in this way, and it's exciting. But there's others of us, maybe this morning, are hearing this and understanding what it means. And rather than being thrilled, we're terrified. Because if this is the belief that we're called to, that's got to be a belief that means something. That's got to be a belief that changes us. So what holds us back? Well, let's consider what held the people back in the text. Verse 11 says that he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why did his people not receive him? Well, one guess is this. They were looking for something else. Here's a, here's a great conversation starter for you. My family gets together around the dinner table. We like to ask a question. Here's a question for you. What's the world's greatest problem? Is the world's greatest problem external? Is it out there? Fill in the blank. In Jesus' day, there was a notion that their greatest problem was was oppression from oppressors. They had a Roman occupying army. 
And if that is your greatest problem, what sort of salvation are you looking for? You're looking for an external redemption. You're looking to get rid of that external oppression. Jesus' people in Jesus' day were, were looking for an external solution to an external problem. But Jesus, he came. We talked about sin. We talked about the heart. When you start talking about sin and the heart, when you think that your biggest problem is an external oppressor, then it sort of turns off the conversation pretty quickly. Jesus' people in Jesus' day, they, they appreciated his teaching. They, they even enjoyed the signs and the miracles that he did, but they failed to look beyond the signs to the person and to his message. What about us? Why do we hold back from this type of belief? Well, for some of us, it's the same. For some of us, we're still viewing greatest problem is an external problem looking for an external redemption others of us maybe you're holding back for a different reason we've settled for less we've settled for the status quo we don't want jesus to ask too much i'd like to be identified as a christian and it's changing but in our southern bible belt culture that's considered a good thing at least for now i want that but i don't want him to change too much i'm gonna settle for something less we say that we on some level believe it but when we're alone at night in our bed something in our heart says there's got to be more i want more i need more and what the word is telling us here is that there more the word of God here is presenting us with the witness to truth and the truth is a person and the person has come to change everything for our good so what do we do what is our role in belief and that right there is where some of us get hung up as you wrestle with that question of what is our role in belief i want to i want to just clue you into a to a tension that is introduced in this text and it's a tension that we're not going to resolve but it's going to speak into that question of what do we do very clearly we're called to believe in the name of jesus we're called to respond to this witness. And we find that truth throughout Scripture that man is responsible for his, for his actions, for his beliefs, and we must respond to the witness of truth. But there's also another truth that is found in this text. And it's where we began. When we began with those final two words, of God. The witness is of God also this belief and as we will soon see the identity that we are given with this belief it is all God every bit of it witness belief identity because our God is sovereign over all the means and the end so that we might know and receive and believe that tension is in this text God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. And some of us are here and we're trying to 
figure out the mechanics of how that comes together. Michael and I have a mentor who says, it doesn't fit in your brain, but it very much fits in your heart. God calls us to respond, and our God is the one who gives us the heart to respond. The people in this passage, the world, as we come to in verse 10, they, they didn't respond because they couldn't respond. They had hearts that were set against God. But praise be to God who promises in the word to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. It was our assurance of grace this day that God does this. He enables belief in us, ordaining both the means and the end. We're not going to resolve this tension, so let's rest in it and know that even the tension is evidence of God's grace as he calls us to receiving and believing. All along, the witness is pointing us there. The witness bears witness to Jesus so that by the power of God we might believe into Jesus and that we might become children of God. What does it mean to be a member the family. Well, when you're a member of the family, there's a, there's a legal status that, that accompanies being a child. You have all the rights and privileges of the, of the family. There is even a, a, a sharing in the inheritance of the family by virtue of that legal right. But there's much more than legal rights being spoken to here when text calls us to know and uh, embrace this truth of being a child of God. There is this call to uh, belong to the family, to know that as a child of God, we are beloved, we're safe. We're even safe to wrestle with these truths. There is an intimacy of access given to us through Jesus. Because through Jesus, we're engrafted into the family of God. To be a child of God is to be adopted. So in believing, there's this transfer of trust. But in being a child of God, there's a transfer of identity from, from one source into the family of God. One of the most precious pictures I have ever seen of this truth was uh, my little friend Eddie. <laughs> Eddie uh, was a child who was adopted by some dear friends of ours in North Carolina who uh, pursued him, who prayed over him, who sought him out. Eddie was born as a baby with Down syndrome in Ecuador and was literally thrown in the dumpster by his parents. He was found and taken to an adoption uh, well, to an orphanage, and, and our friends who had prayed for so long for Eddie came to know him. They developed a relationship with him. They prayed for him. They persistently pursued him for two years, fighting through government red tape until the day when he could officially become their child. That day, when Eddie was baptized, it was the most beautiful service of worship I have ever 
participated in because when those waters were sprinkled on him, signifying not his saving faith, but his, his place in the family of God, a place that we would, uh, we would pray that would come to a fulfillment in his faith in time. That sprinkling of water, marking him as God's own, as a part of the covenant community, it was clear as it had never been clear that it is all of grace. That the parents' pursuit of him was a picture of God's pursuit. His fearsome, persistent grace. Friends, as beautiful as that picture is, as beautiful as, as Eddie's adoption is, that illustration of his adoption and all adoption, it falls woefully short in biblical doctrine of adoption. And that's what I've come to realize. Because as as beautiful as earthly adoption is, it is still sin-stained. And there is pain that lingers. There's sin in the, in the giving up of the child. And in the adopting family, as gracious as they are, and, and oftentimes as Christian families selflessly giving of their lives to adopt this family, they still have their own sin struggles, and they invite this child into a family marked by sin struggle. But with the, adopt, the doctrine of adoption, are still sin struggles but they're our own <laughs> they're not somebody else's they're our own but the God whom we have sinned against pursues us and brings us into his family friends with adoption into God's family. We are engrafted into his perfect family cloaked in his perfect righteousness the perfect righteousness of Christ we are embraced by the perfect love of the Father. And verse 13 makes it clear that this is all, every single bit of it, of God. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's all grace. But I feel the need even there to explain my words because this word grace is one that we throw out so freely that we've lost its it's, it's power. Last week, if you were here, you heard me speak against propositional Christianity. If then, if I believe into Jesus, you understand that? Depth of belief. If I believe that way, then I'll get adoption. Then I'll get to be a child of God. That is propositional Christianity. That this becoming a child of God is dependent upon me, the strength of my faith. I just preached against that. And yet this week, as I came to this text and started wrestling through it, that's exactly where my heart went. Because I'm tempted. It's so ingrained in me to earn my way in this life that I impose that on God. Propositional Christianity says that becoming a child of God is dependent upon me, on my belief. But that's not what the text says text says, but of God. Adoption is of God, just as belief is of God, just as the witness is from God. It is all of God, all of grace. And this beautiful doctrine of adoption fosters faith. To know our God is this loving and this gracious draws us in to faith. Reminds me something 
about the witness. John, a witness here, he didn't come to teach us about the process of transfer. I've talked about transferring trust and transferring identity. John didn't come to teach us merely that process. He came to point us to the person of Jesus Christ. Again, not to prove his identity. His identity is true. He came to convict us of unbelief and to draw us into belief, saving belief, belief into the person of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he also came to establish our place in the family of God. If you've been around this church for any period of time, you've you've heard me speak of God's vision statement. God's vision statement is a thread that we see throughout Scripture from beginning to end where God says in this promise, I will be their God and they will be my people. You hear that? God says from beginning to end, I will be their God and they will be my people. It is a promise that is intensely relational. Because God is relational and he draws us in to relational belief. It's the heart of God. It's what the witness is pointing us to, to the person of God who came to make it a reality. And in in that, please do not miss this beautiful gospel irony. Jesus came to his own people. But his own people. The people who had the law. The people who had the prophets, the people who had the worship, they rejected him because they wanted someone or something else. This Jesus, who was rejected by his own people, he came to claim us. A people who were not his, who ran away from him with everything in in our being, He came to claim us as his own. The one rejected by his own came to a people who were not his own and called them, in fact, named them my people. This is a truth that is cemented in faith. And it is also a truth that nurtures faith. What are your deepest desires? To be seen? To be known, to be loved, to be claimed. Yes, yes, we all want this. But maybe even more, we want to know the person who will do it. The person who will see us and know us and love us and claim us. Jesus is that person. Friends, believe into him and don't settle for anything or anyone less. Let us pray. Father, your word, your word is true. Your word from beginning to end points us to the person of Jesus. And I pray that you would break down anything in us that, would, that we would put up as a barrier to hold back from believing into his name. I pray for the beauty of that experiential, real belief this morning. Do this, we ask, by the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son.